0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there. Hey Jane, I have a question for you. Shoot. What was your favorite fairy tale growing up?
1: Growing up I think it had to be Cinderella.
0: Nice choice.
1: Yeah, what about you? Snow White choice. I like that.
0: Definitely. Yeah. I like I like the Disney movie with her little bobbed dark haircut. I think she was the only Disney princess that I can think of who had short hair.
1: That is interesting. I never thought about that. I love uh, Cinderella, I guess, because of the whole uh, magical uh, enchanted mice and everything, which I thought was hilarious when they did it uh, in Enchanted, if you saw that, with the real mice coming in and, and trying to clean the apartment.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> well, you know, rodents are really no laughing matter, as we will soon see. But first, a little background on fairy tales. As most of you probably know, fairy tales weren't always as light and fluffy and bedtime story-ish as they are today day. They started out with the brothers Grimm, uh, Jacob and Wilhelm, and they were pretty dark. And there's a very specific reason for that. And that's that back when Jacob and Wilhelm were around um, in the 1800s, they were trying to do more of a historical and cultural thing rather than a literary movement when they recorded Germany's folklore. This was not an initiative that they came up with on their own. They had a friend who was compiling a lot of um, local Germanic tales and they decided that they would be sort of these cultural anthropologists and go out and collect their own stories too. But their friend was moving a little bit too slowly for their taste so by 1812 they published a volume on their own under the name Brothers Grimm and it was called Children's and Household tales.
1: This was really popular, right?
0: It was. It was hugely popular. And at first, the stories weren't really geared toward children. It was, again, like I said, more of a matter of historical relevance Mm -hmm. and and writing down uh, German folklore. But they toned it down once they saw how popular it was with children. And the reason that they were trying to be so authentic in their recording of these tales is that Napoleon was sweeping throughout Europe at this time. And they really thought that Germany would lose its identity if it wasn't recorded. And so if you look at these tales that the Grimm Brothers wrote down, they have very pressing historical and cultural significance. And we're going to study one in particular in just a minute. But just to go ahead and, and finish out the Grimm Brothers' story, um, as the Napoleonic invasions came throughout Germany and throughout Europe, their professions changed a little bit, too. I think that they took a, a stab at law school and decided that wasn't going to work out. So Jacob actually became a diplomat for a while. And Wilhelm became a secretary to a librarian. And around this time, they put out the second volume. Next came Small Edition, which was a collection of the fairy tales that their brother Ludwig illustrated. But if you think that the Grimm brothers were all fairy tales, you're mistaken, because they were philologists, too. And if you aren't up to speed on philology, essentially it's uh, it's uh linguistics, really. And it puts a lot of emphasis on a culture's history and identity and how speech patterns really illuminate that. So they spent some time in their retirement actually compiling a German dictionary. And Jacob is credited for a pretty significant linguistic contribution called Grimm's Law. And I'm no linguist or Expert, but as far as I can understand it, essentially what Grimm's Law boils down to is the um, alteration of, of sounds and particular words as the Germanic language became more and more disparate from other European languages. And I don't have a really good example for you guys, but you can all Google Grimm's Law and you can see lots of illustrated uh, examples of how it works. And I think there's even one that I found online that shows how it works within the context of a Grimm brother's Fairy tale. And speaking of fairy tales, that is what we are going to talk about today and the very, very scary possibility that one of the most frightening Grimm Brothers fairy tales might actually be
1: true. That's right. And we're talking about uh, the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And this was a really popular story as soon as it came out, like uh, Candace was talking about. And uh, one famous poet, Robert Browning, even even did a a really popular English version of the story. But to go back to the original Grimm story, are you ready for story time? I am. Okay. I've got my cookies and lactose-free milk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't lay down in bed because this is going to freak you out so you can't (laughs) sleep afterwards. So this story is set in the German town of Hamelin. This is a real place. It, It exists to this day. It starts back in 1284. So back then, the uh, according to the story, the whole town was suffering from this really bad rat infestation. While it's dealing with this, uh, it doesn't know what to do. There's rats everywhere. So this motley-clad fellow strolls in, promises the town people, I can get rid of all your rats. And uh, the townspeople are so happy about this that they're like, yes, please. And they, like, promise as much money as, as the uh, Motley fellow um, wants. So he takes out his pipe and he starts playing it. And magically, all the rats come gathering around him. They follow him wherever he goes, and eventually he leads them into a river near the near the town uh, called River Weiser. Weiser, I'm not sure, but um, Weiser. anybody Weiser, that's good. Any German listening? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the rats follow him in to this to this river as he goes in, and just blindly follow, and he and they all drown. So the townspeople are ecstatic, and they are so happy to be rid of the rats. So the piper is like, okay, I did my deed, where's my money? And this is probably where we get the term, pay the piper as we'll see. Um the town refuses to pay the piper in this in this uh situation in the story and they say when the rats are gone, what are you gonna do? We're not gonna pay you anymore. What are you gonna bring them back to life or something? So he leaves the town and he's really mad and justifiably so mm-hmm. but he swears vengeance and uh his vengeance I don't know if is if it's quite uh as warranted. So he returns to the town a little later. And this time he's dressed a little differently, and he's playing a new tune this time. And this time rats don't come, but children do. Every single child starts uh, following him. And, and and not just the children, right? right. Uh, the, the mayor's grown daughter. That's right. The grim to... story mentions the mayor's grown daughter, which maybe that's a, a little slap in the face of the mayor right there, who was probably responsible for him not getting paid. It's pretty interesting. So the kids gather around, dance around him, and follow him wherever he goes, just like the rats. Do. And he doesn't take them into the river, but he does do something just as bad, and he takes them to a cave in a nearby nearby mountain, and they're never heard from again. And what's curious is that some say, in the, in the Grimm story at least, some say that the kids went into the cave and they came out on the other side, which happened to be in Transylvania. Either way, nobody heard from the kids again in the town of Hamelin. So
0: in the context of a fairy tale, that's disturbing enough because... No one wants to see all of a town's children just vanish into thin air under the, um, under the direction of some strange guy wearing multicolored clothes. It's pretty creepy, but the fact that it could actually be a real story, who the heck was this Piper? And I think some historians have even uh, gone so far as to suggest that he was a pedophile and he lured the children to a secret place and then he chopped up their bodies and scattered them everywhere.
1: Yeah, that's one theory that actually William Manchester writes. And it's kind of a controversial book, we should say. It's called A World Lit Only by Fire. And that's what he says. Um, but a lot of people question that, and there are other theories. And it's interesting because the story isn't the only reason people think this might have happened. There is a little bit more evidence that something terrible happened in Hamlin. And one piece of evidence is the idea of a stained glass window that the, that the townspeople put up around the year 1300. And they put up this window, apparently, in the church, and it depicted a motley clad fellow with a group of children dressed in white. And the window doesn't exist today. If you go to Hamlin, you won't see it because it was apparently destroyed. But there are accounts that exist that say that there are accounts of the window, people who had seen it and wrote about it. And it had a pretty telling inscription, right? That's right. It had an inscription around it that said that 130 children were brought into danger and lost. Hmm. So um it does uh, beg the question if something did happen. And another uh, piece of evidence that popped up was about a century after the window was put up. There uh, is an account of this monk writing that a man playing the flute came into the town and led the kids out. Very curious. And by 1603, the town puts up, and no, 1603 is 300 years after the story would have apparently happened. Around that year, they the townspeople put up a facade of a building with another similar inscription about a Pied Piper bringing the kids into danger. And one of the issues that we've actually discussed before
0: on an earlier podcast about Lady Godiva, another story that revolved around a monk's writings and a stained glass window, is that when we're talking about oral storytelling, only so much can really be trusted. And what's great about the Brothers Grimm is that they finally took these oral stories and recorded them. But if they were, in fact, based in history, real events that occurred, who knows how many times the stories had been manipulated by word of mouth and by people who didn't quite understand what they were saying that's right. into the tale that it became. And mm-hmm. uh, you may recall an earlier podcast that Jane and I did about the Crusades, and Jane discussed the Children's Crusade. And that's another possibility that these children followed one child in particular Who may have claimed to have a vision from God that he was supposed to lead his fellow children into battle and, you know, to uh, avenge the Holy Land. Right, right. And that could have been it.
1: Yeah, that is one possible theory. And it's kind of, it's a little convincing, I think, that could have happened because it was around that time, maybe a little bit uh, later. But... There is another really interesting theory that maybe the children were all suffering from some horrible disease, and it caused them to die. and people historians uh, they they guess that perhaps this is uh, an early form of the plague. We did an earlier podcast on the Black Death, and um if you heard that, you'll know a little bit. About, about that disease and how horrible it was.
0: And historians postulate too that the motley clad fellow who was the Pied Piper may not have been dressed in multicolored garments. Instead, his skin could have been motley. It, it could have had red splotches that were symptomatic of some sort of disease that he had. They could have been some sort of skin lesions and the idea that he may have even been afflicted with Huntington's disease, which is a disease that manifests in people who are of middle age and it can be characterized by, um I think, mild bouts of dementia, and people could act in rather exuberant ways. We know that the piper came in dancing a little bit merrily, supposedly playing on his pipe, leading the children out in a, a very fanciful dance and song. So maybe he could have been demented in some way. We, we don't really know, but I think that there is enough historical evidence to suggest that there is a grain of historical truth Mm -hmm. to the Pied Piper of Hamlin.
1: That's true, and it's really interesting. And I I do want to mention one last theory, which might be the most convincing for me, at least. Remember I mentioned at the end of the story that some say that the kids came out the other side in Transylvania. And there is some evidence that uh, a man came to the town of Hamlin around the the right time of the story, and he was looking for people to help him colonize parts of Eastern Europe. So there's speculation, at least, that the kids might have come with him and taken taking them to a place around where transylvania was uh, and that's what actually happened to the children
0: and that uh, may shed some light on the fact that the mayor's grown daughter maybe maybe she had some sort of special permission from her father as the leader of the town to go with them and help them colonize this new land. That's right. Can we really know? But what is really interesting is that you may be thinking, well, thank goodness there are no more rats in the town of Hamlin lest Mm -hmm. another Pied Piper come along and take all of their children. Well, I'm very sorry to inform you that the Times actually reported on December 17th of 2008 that Hamlin has a rat problem again. And the particular reporter who was covering the story used the phrase, rat catchers are in vogue again. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And they're attributing the rat problem to these allotment gardens around the periphery of the city. And they're sort of like community gardens. Mm-hmm. You know, you can pay a fee to have a small parcel of land to grow flowers and vegetables and fruits. And if they're not tended to, they just, they beckon for rats to come and just create a mess. So I think that they were estimating that more than 200 packs of rats had been identified in the city as of December 2008. Wow. And rats are, they're pretty uh, productive in the boudoir, as it were. And I think that one couple can breed up to 2,000 descendants per year. So there's a debate right now over how they're going to kill all of these rats and do it in a humane way, mm-hmm. which probably was not a huge concern back when the Grimm brothers would have been riding. I think sure. a little bit less
1: concerned about the humanity of, <laughs> of killing rats correctly. Sure. So I guess the story is, is a lot more alive today in Hamlin than they want it to be. But also, they do get a lot of tourism to this day. You can visit Hamlin. Um, I guess it's spelled differently now, but uh, it's the same town. And every Sunday, actually, in the summer, they act out the story. So they do they do carry in a lot of tourism for it. They They do. I think they even make rat-shaped buns in local bakeries. They have a musical called Rats.
0: (laughs) You know, not too dissimilar from our cats over here. Um, (laughs) you can even take a rat catcher tour. And from what I understand, especially in, you know, Hamlin today, it's a pretty thriving profession. You can make a, a pretty penny off being a rat catcher. And, Back during the time of the Black Death and the Plague, it was a very esteemed profession because mm-hmm. you're really putting yourself in the line of fire, like a policeman would today. You know, there's always that risk that you could die when you're yeah. on the job. So anyway, Pied Piper, one of the, the oldest rat catchers in and uh Grim Brother history. So remember to pay the Piper. Exactly, pay <laughs> the Piper. And for even more about fairy tales that have a grain of historical truth and other interesting characters from history, be sure to check out HowStuffWorks.com. And if you have any ideas about a historical topic you'd like to hear us discuss, email us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.